won't see more of the, the wonderful scholarship uh, that you guys are doing. It's really impressive. Can I just uh, just get a sense, though? Um, how many of you would regard yourself as, in some sense, a historian? I'm in trouble. So um, I'm. I think I'm likely to appall you. Philosophers, <laughs> philosophers when they uh, risk speaking about history, um, uh, know that they are comical. So um, you have to understand that first of all. And in fact, I'm going to begin with something uh, utterly unscholarly and not yet even historical and not yet even philosophical, but something like an experience of my own. Um, it is, however, an experience that I'm willing to res risk suggesting is not my own alone. Now, the experience that I want to say something about doesn't relate to an episode or an event, uh, an event in the world as I found it, or that I've witnessed in the course of my life. Rather, it re relates to something about the world in which our lives are lived out these days. It's about nowadays. The phase of time that we refer to when we speak of our time, especially as we're going to see, we Europeans, although, as we shall also see, not only Europeans. The experience I want to attest to is what I want to call the perplexing opacity of our time. Its historical trajectory, if any, seems withheld. I want to introduce an attempt to try to come to terms with our time. Now, coming to terms with our time is not intended to be a gesture of acquiescence to it, but a project of making sense, of finding the words, finding the words that will clarify the opacity of our time. That is, to, to make sense of it as a time that doesn't make much sense. We can get close to the situation I want to describe here with reference to something in one of Shakespeare's plays the tragedy of Timon of Athens. It was a favourite of Marx's, one of the greatest thinkers of world crisis, and no doubt he liked the play in part because it's set during the onset of a financial crisis, a crisis for a wealthy Athenian uh, whose creditors have been calling in their debts. Shakespeare's opening does not immediately recall this crisis situation, but instead presents a way of configuring the time of the play with words which seem to belong to more or less any time. And I don't know if Shakespeare heard it or invented it, but the words of a grumpy house painter to a cheerful poet certainly seem to voice it. So here we have the slap bang beginning of the play situation. Happy poet, grumpy painter. Painter here is not like a, an artist, he's a house painter, painting the walls. Good day, sir. I'm glad you're well. I've not seen you long. How goes the world? It wears, sir, as it grows. Aye, that's well known. But what particular rarity? What strange, which manifold record not manifest? Now, the house painter's gloomy assessment of a wearing and growing world is assessed in turn by the cheerful poet as how things always are. Wearing and growing is what the world always does. It's always becoming more worn out than it once was, and it seems always to be getting bigger too. But that's not enough for the poet. He wants to know whether there is something genuinely unprecedented taking place in his today. And that's what I want to do too. How should we conceive the distinctive character, the particular rarity of the contemporary world, and in particular, as I'll say, the contemporary European world? What is distinctive about it which manifold record not matches? Well, I want to begin by suggesting two developments in relation to Shakespeare's schema. The first development, we might say, is that in a planetary way, the world has stopped growing. We live in the era of completed globalization. 
As the French poet and essayist Paul Valéry put it in the 1930s, there is no rock that does not bear a flag. There are no more blanks on the map, no region not out of reach of the customs officials and the law. And he goes on to say, the age of the finite world has begun. We're living, we might say, more and more in a time after Copernicus. And a second development. Not only do we live in a time of a kind of geopolitical extensiveness without limit, but what marks our worldwide world is the loss of any way of speaking of the unity of that world. We lack the kind of gathered and joined up discourse that would be a discourse of the world as a world. We're living, we might say, more and more in a world that is no world. Well, it was not always so, at least not for Europeans. One way of articulating the specificity of the lives of Europeans when their world seemed altogether more world-like would be to say that they inhabited a world in which, for most Europeans, submission to God's purpose was at the centre of their lived-out lives, of their self-understanding, anchoring what it was like to live, what it was like to be alive then, in a non-physiological sense. Now, attempting to articulate a radical sense of our thrownness into the whereabouts of some historically specific time and place, Heidegger generalizes that kind of idea when he speaks of every Dasein, his name for whatever it is that we are, the entity we are, every Dasein, as, as he puts it, having factically submitted to a definite world, submitted to a world as its world a whereabouts that makes sense. Right? The world is that whereabouts that makes most sense, the most familiar, wherein that all the other things, all the bits of your life go on. The whereabouts that makes sense and is the homeland of a life. One might want to say, however, Whereas Heidegger generalizes this idea of submission to a world, one might wonder whether that is entirely independent of, or at least has not always been entirely independent of, submission to God's purpose. That those concepts of submission to a world and submission to God in a certain way may go together. In an aphorism from Nietzsche, he puts it as follows. Around the hero, everything becomes a tragedy. Around the demigod, a satyr play. And around God, everything becomes what? Perhaps a world. As it's reproduced here, this is a self-standing remark in Nietzsche's text. And it belongs to a collection of short aphoristic remarks in a chapter of a book called Beyond Good and Evil. The chapter called Maxims and Interludes. And although the remark may be self-standing, it only just stands up. And the long dash at the end, beyond the questioning perhaps, which may be all that we have left to work with in our time, stands even more defiantly as a moment of, of incompleteness, perhaps pressing us on to wonder what is around when God is dead. One way to try to come to terms with our present condition might be to try to speak of a present world crisis. And I was very interested to see a reference from that even in the 1960s from one of the papers, Habermas, responding to an idea of the, the present world crisis. And that, that sort of uh, way of coming to terms with our time through that concept of the, the crisis and the present world crisis is one that philosophers, Marx included, have tried to speak to and from our time. But it's not the only way, and this is what I want to talk about today. One might talk today of a crisis in the concept of crisis as a good word for thinking our time, a time that 
I will want to see as inseparably connected to the history of Europe's modernity. So I'm going to talk about that history, the history that we can, I will specify as, uh, as the history of Europe's modernity, connected to wherever we are today, a thought of crisis in world history or in, in uh, a crisis in, in, in the present condition of the world and a thinking beyond crisis as the best word for thinking of that situation. Now, philosophical engagement with the theme of Europe's modern condition as it moves into our time has two contrasting strands, basically. Uh, one is this more, as it were, traditional, what I'll call the Europe crisis strand. And on the other hand, this other way of trying to come to terms with it, another way of finding the best word, or the, some, what I might call a redeeming word, um, an exhausted Europe strand. So, crisis strand and exhausted Europe strand. The first Europe crisis strand begins with and accepts the basic premise of the classic discourse of European philosophical history, or what's often called universal history. The idea that human history as a whole is essentially the unfolding of reason in time. So you have a configuration where you begin with a mere potential, reason as a potential in what is called man, under the name of man, reason as a mere potential in primitive human animality. And that this potential in man unfolds in time as history, indeed that is what history is, is the unfolding of reason in time towards a fully rational, civilized humanity. With Europe at the head. On that view, human history, the history of the world, of that human world, is the emancipation and de-alienation of rational subjectivity in time. And that would be history. Now, marrying the end and the end times conceptions of Greek teleology on the one hand, with a telos, the end, a purposive movement towards an end, marrying that end of Greek teleology and the end times of Christian eschatology, human history was conceived in the Enlightenment self-understanding as fundamentally providential. So that sequence of that's mapped out in universal history, the unfolding of reason in time, is thought of as a providential uh, development. A divine providence controls it and guides it from its origin, this primitive beginnings of where reason is mere potential, towards its proper end, the proper end that is of man, where man is not just like some animal amongst other animals. Man is understood within this schema as theomorphic, rational animality. So within this marrying of the Greek and the Christian, of the telos, teleology and the eschatology, man is inscribed within that situation as theomorphic, distinctive, and rational, distinctive, together, history, the unfolding of theomorphic, rational subjectivity, animality. The significance of the centrality of God to, and God's purposes for man to human history is a, of a piece with that distinctively European, that is to say Greco-Christian, conception of man. An a priori anthropology that makes of human historicity an archaeotelio eschatology. So you have this idea of a historical uh, development from an origin to an end, both Greek and Christian, an archaeotelio eschatological universal history of man, where man is inscribed within that as theomorphic rational animality. And that is a history in which Europe positions itself in the 
uh, in the production of the first effort at universal history, Europe presents itself at the very centre of the centre of this history and the head of this development. With its modernity, its break from uh, tradition, traditional sort of regionality, regional culture, um, a break from magic, myth, superstition, and, and in a certain um, mythologized religion, a break into a rational scientific philosophical culture. Europe in this movement in modernity belongs at the head of this development, having attained or, or, or conceiving itself as having attained a higher condition, a higher stage, it would normally be said, for humanity, one therefore with universal and not merely regional significance. And that's how Europe understands itself through this anthropology and this relationship to a providential history. Now, the course of actual history, which, uh, of course, you people will know more about the most, even if it's understood as having a teleological sense in some way, never itself, as it were, just runs smooth. Europe's attainment of this higher stage remains vulnerable to all sorts of setbacks, shocks, missteps, or more precisely, it's con it, in conditions where man is striving for radical self-responsibility, because that's what, <coughs> as it were, rational guidance is, is the, is the free guidance of one's own being through one's own um, uh, best lights, as it were. This man striving for radical self-responsibility, it's only to be expected that there will be periods of crisis. Periods where we, as it were, lead ourselves astray en route to the end, so go off the track. And that the movement of emancipation and progress of man towards his proper end would be, as it were, held up, held back, turned back, endangered. This is a crisis. Writing in the 1930s, in the midst of the rise of fascism, the German philosopher of Jewish heritage, Edmund Husserl, thought that European humanity was just then going through such a period of self-misdirection. What was taking place, he suggested, belonged to the inner dissolution of the philosophical modern age. So looking at this development of Europe out of its Greek origins, which should be this break in towards the scientific, rational, self-responsible humanity. Instead, it, from its own developments, in, in, an inner dissolution is taking place. A condition expressed most profoundly, he thought, in the falling away of what he called faith in the meaning of history a falling away of faith in the very idea that history is the history of the unfolding of reason, and hence a falling away of faith that Europe's modern condition is indeed a higher stage for man in history. For Husserl, this is what he calls a spiritual crisis, which runs to the very core of our being, bringing about, he says, a more and more prominent crisis of European humanity itself in respect to the total meaningfulness of its cultural life, its total, and then he quotes the word, existence, the German word, existence. Husserl wants to be able to take on board the possibility that actual history will not take the course that philosophical history will present as its innermost truth. The latter, the innermost truth would be this teleology in which Europeans are the bearer of this teleology and as it were first for the first time in the history of the world erupting their, the very idea of a history of the world. So this teleology of European history uh, characterizing the inner, innermost uh, reality of, of, of this development. A development of a European world he thought that was uh, born out of the spirit of philosophy. He sees this as something, as it were, which is losing its own way, 
but he cleaves to the idea that philosophical history, the idea of a telic development of rational animality, articulates the necessary background for understanding the general trajectory of anything that actually happens. So a crisis is a crisis with respect to such a development. Crises are events within the history of man thus understood. Never a crisis, for example, for that conception of history. The present world crisis is thus reduced to a merely errant moment within that history of man. As Husserl puts it, the crisis, this is his words, the crisis could then become distinguishable as the only apparent failure of rationalism. Husserl is for that reason equally committed to the idea that reason can get back on track. This apparent failure can be overcome. And with the right kind of reorientation, he says, uh, its own task can be brought back on track. A rather long quote from Husserl. There are only two escapes from the crisis of European existence, either in the downfall of a Europe alienated from its own rational sense of life, fallen into a barbarian hatred of spirit, or in the rebirth of Europe from the spirit of philosophy through a heroism of reason that will definitively overcome the apparent failure of rationalism that is naturalism and biologism, we could see inside that. Europe's greatest danger is weariness. Let us, as good Europeans, do battle with this danger of dangers, with the sort of courage that does not shirk even the endless battle. If we do, then from the annihilating conflagration of disbelief, from the fiery torrent of despair regarding the West's mission for humanity, from the ashes of the great weariness, the phoenix of a new inner life of the spirit will arise as the pledge of a great and distant future for man. The pledge, this promise of a future for man, for the spirit alone is immortal. Now the concept of crisis that dominates this discourse is, is one that uh, was talked about earlier today, a concept that's originally linked to the trauma of a living body and it's essentially binary. There are only two escapes. Either a return to health, revival, reorientation, back on track, or death collapse. Of course, were worldly Europe's downfall to prove terminal, it, it, if it were to die as a culture of the higher stage of humanity, Husserl can leave it open that something else and perhaps, why not, somewhere else, might one day take up the task again. In that case, the rebirth of Europe, in a spiritual sense, might not call itself European. Nevertheless, for Husserl, even in that case, the human spiritual community thus formed, a human community of spirit, with its birthplace, as it were, in Greece, with philosophy, would still belong to the universal history whose explicit teleological sense makes its first entrance onto the stage of universal history in and as what called itself modern Europe, belonging internally to the history of Europe and its golden thread with its birthplace in Greece as that passes through Rome to the present. Europe came into being it has the time of its birthplace, and it one may, may one day suffer mortal collapse. But the movement of, a, of spirit thus announced, and announced there for the first time in the history of the world, and precisely as an event internal to the history of the world, could still once more awaken, for the spirit alone is immortal. Husserl speaks of all this in terms of the task of what he calls the spirit's truly universal and truly radical coming to terms with itself. That's, as it were, the movement of this development of rationality. It's reason coming to itself, coming to terms with itself. Where, he says, all questions of being and questions of what is called existence, again in quotes, find their place. And I don't think we, today, whatever condition we're in, as I'm going to be describing, I don't think we 
can get away from some sense of a task of coming to terms with ourselves. The question is whether for us we can think of crisis and the present world crisis as the best word for coming to terms with that condition. And as I've indicated a second strand in the reading of the conditions of, of modern Europe's condition as it moves into our time is available. And it is one that Husserl not only wants to have in view, but also in his explicit reference and quote, as it were, to good Europeans, and in his reference in German over and over again to existenz, in quote marks, he wants to get this other discourse under his own narrative control. Without naming names, Husserl here especially wants to, I would, as I would put it, master or put in their place two by his lights wayward voices in the European wilderness. First, with the good Europeans, Nietzsche, who also wrote of the danger of dangers and wanted explicitly to write about our own historical situation in the name of we good Europeans, explicitly in the 80, 1880s against the rise of German nationalism and we good Germans. Nietzsche says in another voice, we good Europeans, this other future for Europe. And second, with the reference to existence, to Heidegger, his own student, incidentally, uh, most uh, ungrateful disciple, one could imagine, Heidegger, who explicitly defines the kind of being towards which we comport ourselves in one way or another when we have our own being in view as existence. Now, as we'll see, Derrida will be among those most faithful to those wayward voices, the Nietzsche and Heideggerian voices. But he's not exceptional in this. Describing a condition in which the center, sense of Europe's centrality, which is, as it were, central to universal history as it emerges in Europe's modernity, Europe's centrality, the central place of Europe, as, as it were, having been give, assigned a special mission of, of producing universal history and developing science and being on the way towards the end, the bearer of this teleology, Europe's centrality to world history, its exemplary modernity, describing this as not only current, not just currently in bad shape or undergoing some sense of crisis, but in which the very idea of such centrality has become increasingly impossible to believe. The French philosopher, uh, actually he's a naturalized Lithuanian Jewish philosopher, French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, he put it very bluntly. That history of peace, freedom and well-being promised on the basis of a life that the universal knowledge projected onto the world, so that would be the teleological end, this uh, the teleo-eschatological movement towards peace, freedom, and well-being as the proper end of man in this unfolding of reason in time, promised on the basis of a life that the universal knowledge of man, principally, projected onto the world even unto the religious messages that sought justification for themselves in the truths of knowledge. That history is not recognizable in its millennia of fratricidal struggles, political or bloody, of imperialism, scorn and exploitation of the human being, down to our century of world wars, the genocides of the Holocaust and terrorism, unemployment and continual desperate poverty of the third world, ruthless doctrines and cruelty of fascism and national socialism, right down to the supreme paradox of the defense of man and his rights being perverted into Stalinism. Hence the challenge to the centrality of Europe and its culture, a worn out Europe. Now, it's not just, as it were, Europe's centrality that's challenged here, but the conception of man and his history within which Europe's centrality is situated, that history of peace, freedom, and well-being. As Derrida put it in a famous essay on the ends of man, 
the name of man it's not just a it's not just a, a kind of word amongst words it's a, the name of man has meaning only he says in this eschatoteleological situation or again as he put it later in his life in, in the book called the other heading eschatology and teleology that is man since always he adds meaning that the name of man and a particular understanding of the meaning of our being as man have in Europe in, in the metaphysics of the West always belong together the name of man and a particular understanding of our being eschatology and teleology that is man we understand ourselves we the Europeans as man and hence as belonging to a certain kind of uh, historical escato teleological situation so these belong together and belong equally to the idea that, of their being an innermost history of the world that has called itself to become European it belongs that is to say to a world that is fundamentally Greco-Biblical or ontotheological, Greek and Christian, ontotheological. In the second strand in the Europe problem discussion, this Euro exhausted Europe strand, a strand that we can track above all in the work signed by names like Nietzsche, Heidegger and Derrida and Levinas here, this conception of ourselves as man is what is in question. And hence their thinking provokes what Derrida calls the attempt to think the beyond of crisis. Marking a sort of crisis in the concept of crisis as a good word for thinking our time and the who that we are. For the second strand, the exhausted Europe strand, our time is the time of the end of the classic discourses of the end of man, the telos of man. The end of the classic archaeo-teleo-eschatological discourse of philosophical history and hence the exhaustion of the discourse of Europe's modernity a worn-out Europe what then is the crisis of crisis here is Derrida this is going to take a little time there are going to be three slides of a rather long quote responding to a question put to him by a journalist where the journalist asks what is represented for you by the idea that the present world is in crisis? Derrida introduces the theme of his response by noting straight away that perhaps we no longer have at our disposal a discourse through which we can answer such a question. He then rattles through some of the themes that he had himself frequently focused attention on in his work that might be thought, he suggests, to help us name or situate or place what is most singular about our present time. But without elaborating those further, he turns again to the question concerning the crisis of the present world. The crisis, this one here, affects in its possibility every one of the words I have just used name, place, singularity, us, the present, the this we are speechless at this point at this the most acute moment of the paroxysm the point at which this crisis recalls no earlier crisis at least this is what we think we sense there is no lack of interpretations we have too many of them they are pertinent but insufficient in particular they do not lend themselves to being joined no unique or dominant discourse, no system, no arbitrating tribunal to decide on the unity or the unicity of the said crisis going on. In a moment I will venture a suggestion as to why the word crisis deserted the philosophical vocabulary after Valerie and Husserl. This then is the most abyssal crisis, the crisis of crisis. There is no more philosophy of crisis. There will thus be no more world and still less a present world whose common horizon would be able to delimit a determinable experience and as a result an assured competence philosophical, scientific, economic, political in its description 
The anticipation of this unity, even in its language, even its language, seems to us to be withheld, which might lead one to say, and some will think that this is the worst, there is perhaps not even a crisis of the present world. And on. In its turn in crisis, the concept of crisis would be the signature of a last symptom, the convulsive effort to save a world that we no longer inhabit. No more oikos, economy, ecology, livable site in which we are at home. One more try, the word crisis says to us, which is indeed one of our homemade words. One more try to save the discourse of a world that we no longer speak, or that we still speak, sometimes all the more garrulously, as in an emigrant colony. The Europe crisis strand would want to articulate a sense of the history of the world, this world as a whole, and, and what is a world if not a whole, hoping thereby to speak of what threatens it and what would save it in our time. The great difference between the two strands comes at that point. The second regards that hope as slated to disappointment. The very language of its language, including the language of crisis, is itself in crisis. Less than ever the homeland of our lives. Indeed, a homeland of our lives, a world, seems altogether lacking. For the first strand, we live in a time of crisis which can be overcome through an effort which would restore faith in Europe's archaeo-teleological sense. A sense of history as a history of the world unfolding in time. For the second strand, it is that ontotheological conception of history as the history of man, the history of spirit from an origin to an end that is itself in question. This is Derrida again. It is a matter of, for, for the uh, first strand, it's a matter of saving philosophy, whose universality always announces itself by means of the origin and the telos of European reason. But as soon as one questions or exceeds this axiomatic configuration, so when you've got a crisis, there you've got the subject, judgment, decision. We saw uh, Benjamin returning again to the idea that there's some, some voluntarism of the act of the subject who will rescue our situation, move us beyond crisis and so on. Will, consciousness, competence. Once one questions or exceeds that axiomatic configuration, then the most disturbing aspect of the thing, as he's naming it, the wherever it is that we are, the most disturbing aspect of the thing no longer appears on a stage of crisis. In summary then, the suggestion is that there have been two main currents, two main strands in the interpretation of the contemporary condition of Europe's modern self-understanding. The first sees a Europe crisis problem, a condition arising in the midst of the history of reason, the history of human self-realization and self-emancipation, de-alienation, described by the archaeo-teleo-eschatological -teleo schema, a sort of default self-understanding of European humanity in the condition of the early enlightenment with God and God's plan for man and the history of man as providential. The second sees an exhausted Europe problem, a condition arising when the very idea of such a world history, including the idea of crisis, as a recurrent feature of it, is losing its grip on our thinking and believing. Both strands accept that what is taking place is something like the inner dissolution of the old modern European default. However, while the Europe crisis strand regards this as taking place within an ongoing movement of world history, as the unfolding of the reason in man in time, the exhausted Europe strand sees it as taking place in a movement of increasing resistance, inseparable in fact from a democratic movement in Europe, to the very idea of such a history of man. A resistance unfolding from within the world, shaped by that telic idea of emancipation and progress. 
So within a world shaped by an idea of emancipation and progress, you get a movement, what I would summarise as the democratic movement in Europe, which, as it were, produces the inner dissolution of the modern default itself. Something that the British philosopher David Wiggins expresses as a freedom to disbelieve in archaeo-teleological conceptions of human nature and history. A freedom matched for us by a much reduced clarity and a much increased perplexity and opacity concerning the meaning of our existence. The clarity and specificity that was had by people living in European societies in the time before our time belonged to the holding sway of a world. Today this is a world in accelerating dissolution or deconstruction. The thing at issue, what it is that we're trying to come to terms with, is not a crisis for the world of man, but the end of the world made with man in mind. So if you have an idea of the world as that, there, as it were, where we become the centre of cosmic significance, this is the world made with man in mind and, and its providential history, or of course in its secularised variations in historical teleology in somebody like Marx. In this short talk I've wanted to put down just one major marker of our time, namely that we no longer inhabit or inhabit without securely inhabiting a world in which God and God's plan for man is the default centre of our lives, its anchoring centre. So you'd have a, a, the world centred around God and ourselves as theomorphic rational animality having some central spiritual significance within that and understanding our lives in relation to God's plan for man. And Nietzsche invites us to wonder if there is any other kind of world other than one around God. Actually, uh, Kant may have said the same thing in his Opus Postumum, that, the, the, that uh, God is a kind of intentional correlate of the world. So what is most singular about our time? We singularly lack a horizon in which to comprehend it. The old understanding, that is to say the old modern understanding, the telic, archaeoteleological understanding, is no longer one that we can entirely inhabit, but we do not have a new one. We try again and again to find a way to speak the old language, one more try to save the discourse of a world that we no longer speak, one more try to save a world that we no longer inhabit. Without inhabiting a new language, and with the old language not simply in crisis but worn out, there is this shimmering perplexity over the sense of our lives and our history. How goes the world? It has stopped growing and it has worn out. The world of modern Europe has spread out worldwide. Globalization is the worldwideization of this European world. But while it is globally dominant, it is all but exhausted. And we can call this the movement into Europe's post-modernity. That's the famous suggestion of Jean-François Lyotard, who, in, who proposed in 1979, that we should understand the contemporary situation as this postmodern condition, which he also defines in terms of our no longer having a certain kind of discourse at our disposal. He defines the postmodern condition in terms of what he calls incredulity. This is this freedom to disbelieve, this resistance to incredulity toward metanarratives. Metanarratives being the overarching sense-making discourse, discourses through which and in terms of which we had understood, understood the more concrete twists, turns and crises of our lives, our politics, our economics, our nations and so on. These are becoming increasingly incredible, unbelievable, but not because we've converted to some new postmodern narrative, or postmodern meta-narrative, a new discourse of making sense of the world and the significance of our lives. On the contrary, you're just left with the, uh, 
the clarification of the unclarity due to the fact that we are precisely world-lacking. This characteristic seems to me to determine something very basic to the particular rarity of the present condition. For it calls for nothing less than a new conception of whatever it is that we are, that we have called man. What is it that we are? We have called ourselves man. But that name, as I'm saying, isn't just like a, a kind of like uh, a random signifier, as it were. It, it only has its meaning in that archaeo-teleo-eschatological situation. We've called ourselves man, and we lack a new discourse on whatever it is that we are and our historicity, what it means to have a history, to be a being that doesn't, as it were, just isn't just lodged in an environment, but is only in some historical way. A new conception of man in the wake of the death of God, to summarise very rapidly. Embracing what he called this conclusive transitoriness, conclusive transitoriness, right? So instead of, oh, maybe we're just a transitory being on a planet in the middle of nowhere, no embraced as a conclusive transitoriness that belongs to our thoroughly decentered condition, Nietzsche anticipated that this new conception of man will be, he says, one in which man is no longer the collaborator, let alone the centre of becoming. Here is Bernard Williams, British philosopher, making a similar point. We know that the world was not made for us, or we, or we for the world, that our history tells us no purposive story, that there is no position outside the world or outside history from which we might hope to authenticate our activities. We have to acknowledge the hideous costs of many human achievements that we value, including this reflective sense itself, and recognize that there is no redemptive Hegelian history or universal Leibnizian cost-benefit analysis to show that it would all come out well enough in the end. This condition, as Williams remarks, has also lost the convictions of what he calls Christian hope and of Kantian and Hegelian providential theodicy that had supercharged Europe's modern history and its sense of its own centrality. It is he, our condition is, he says, already beyond those legacies in the sense that we can't go back to them to come to terms with the condition we find ourselves in, a condition in which, as Williams puts it, basically citing Lyotard, that there is precisely widespread scepticism about les grands récits, through which, in that earlier time, we had made sense of our lives. And my basic suggestion today is that this is not then about an epochal crisis, but an epochal exhaustion, the exhaustion of an increasing resistance to the very framework of sense-making in which the discourse of world crisis had its place. Writing about this postmodern interpretation of our situation, the Hegelian philosopher Robert Pippin recently is dismissive. He says, he, he just merely records what he sees of as sighs about S-I-G-H-S, sighs about philosophical exhaustion. However, perhaps I sigh only because I take more seriously than he seems willing to his own recognition that, quote, the assumption that the cosmos is an ordered and purposive whole now looks like an indefensible anachronism. And the implications that this has for his own neo-Hegelian version of teleology, a version which seems to me still too strongly impressed by what he regards as the very difficult to reject conception of history as internally rational. But the idea of an internally rational history of the world really does not, to use a Wittgensteinian expression, stand fast for us anymore. We are, as David Wiggins says, more resistant to it than Europeans two or three hundred years ago knew how to be. Nevertheless, we know too that the, that idea, that idea of history that belonged to modern Europe, modern European humanity, 
that belong to its conception of the meaning of man. We know too that that idea does belong internally to the history of the world as it has actually unfolded. That's exactly, as it were, the reminder inside Levinas's point about the history of colonization or the history of Marxism. Indeed, it's not only an idea, but has been history producing, a history of the world which has been inseparable from the metaphysics of Greco-Christian archaeoteleologism and its hopes for the future attainment of a condition in which the inherent capacities of man may finally flourish in some radically, ultimately de-alienated, emancipated condition. Condition in which they may finally flourish in a world marked by peace, freedom and well-being. And we today are the inheritors of that old European, modern European understanding of the world and the significance of our lives. We're the inheritors of the epoch of archaeo-teleological reason and its inseparable Eurocentrism, and indeed its anthropocentrism, its man at the centre, and in fact its androcentrism, its men at the centre, and its ethnocentrism about European humanity. But we live in the throe, we live in the throe of its unravelling. Nevertheless, and seeing this condition more originally, I think, and unflinchingly than perhaps anyone has, Nietzsche too retained a hope. He says, the greatest possibilities of man are still unexhausted. Indeed, as Derrida affirms too, when the old understanding lies worn out and exhausted, a newly decentered understanding can now make its way. And this is a promising chance. Indeed, it's the chance of understanding our old interest in emancipation and progress as having always been a promise or a pledge, to use the word that Husserl used. As promised, Derrida says, and not as ontotheological or teleoeschatological program or design. As uh, Derrida goes on to say, in the same place, on the same limit where history is finished, there where a certain determined concept of history comes to an end, precisely there the historicity of history begins. There finally it has the chance of heralding itself, of promising itself. There where man, a certain determined concept of man, is finished. There the pure humanity of man, of the other man, and of man as other, with decentered self-understanding, begins or has finally the chance of heralding itself, of promising itself. And that is just the beginning. But here today I will stop. <laughs>